So I want to start out today with a little bit of a history lesson for you. Okay, we got to take you back to the Old Testament, to the people of Israel. Now, they've become a nation, and uh, they finally have come together in the land, and uh, they decide they want a king. But, but the prophet Samuel says, no, you, you don't want a king. The king's going to tax you, he's going to uh, abuse you and use you and, uh, for his own gain. But they said, no, give us a king. So, so God relents through Samuel, and they get Saul. From Saul, they get David, the great warrior king that helps unite the people by moving his capital to Jerusalem, which was not a part of any of the 12 tribes, so it was considered kind of neutral. Then we get uh, Solomon, who is David's son, who, whose claim to, flame, claim to fame, besides being so wise and so rich, is that he builds the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. But after Solomon's son, the, the, the nation, the kingdom of Israel divides. So we have this, this period, the, those first few kings called the United Monarchy, and then we have the divided kingdom or the divided monarchy. And so Israel divides. They, it goes north and south. And, and most of the tribes were in the northern part, uh, even though most of them had smaller lands. It gets a little confusing sometimes when you read your Bible because the north is called Israel and the south is called Judah because Judah was this kingdom that had a large uh, property, a large piece of the land. And it was mostly in the south and included Jerusalem. So for a long time in the Old Testament, if you're following along, some, sometimes Israel is the whole place, but sometimes Israel is the nation of Israel up to the north as opposed to Judah in the south. Now the problem is Israel was pretty small to begin with. I mean, it's only about the size of maybe Vermont or New Jersey. So to divide and then to sometimes fight each other, Israel did not have the power to really do anything about enemies that arise. And in fact, a strong enemy does arise in the northeast of Israel, in the area now of Iraq, uh, comes a power called the Assyrians. The Assyrians could be pretty vicious. They would take people over. And, and part of their strategy for subduing their large empire is what's called exile. So what they would do is, is they wouldn't exile everybody. I mean, that just wasn't economically feasible. But they would take the elites, the culture makers. So any of the kings and officials, the royal lines, uh, the uh, skilled laborers, the artisans, uh, the military rulers and the strongest soldiers, and they would spread them out throughout the empire. And then they would do the same thing in reverse. So they would uh, take people from other places and they would take them to your place. So the culture makers of your people would end up not being your people and eventually you would lose your cultural identity and you would just be Assyrian. You wouldn't be Israel or whatever else that you were. Okay, this happened for Assyria. They came in and attacked the northern nation of, of Israel, not the whole thing, but the northern part in around 740 BCE and by 722 they have, remember in the BCs the time goes backwards, by 722 they end up uh, destroying Samaria and taking a number of the, the Israelites that were in the north into exile. And, and many of them never return again. Most of the tribes are never really heard of uh, in, uh, specifically from that point forward. They get as far as Jerusalem, but then God spares the people there. The Assyrians then, up in, up in this area of Iraq, are replaced by the Babylonians. 
and the Babylonians take over the Assyrians' power, their land, but also their principles of how to subdue people through exile. In the year 598, 597, the Babylonians come uh, and they uh, destroy, somewhere around there, 596 maybe, they destroy the temple and all of Jerusalem, and they do this, they exile the people. So, so imagine Judah then, having uh, uh, been destroyed, I mean decimated. I mean, by the numbers we have, we, we think that maybe at that time Judah was around 200,000 people, and we think that eight or 10,000 people were carried off in exile, maybe 5% of the population, but they were the culture makers. It, it's easy to assume that, that maybe that many were killed in all these battles as well. And so imagine your nation falling apart when you are... Uh, your people, your main people are carried off, your leaders are carried off, and now you have new people among, in, in your midst. Psalm 137 is about this, and here's how it starts. I'll just read verses 1 through 4. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On our pillows there we hung our lyres. On the willows there we hung our lyres, sorry. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing of the Lord's song in a foreign land? I mean, the, the exile was just crushing for the people. I mean, even those who were left at home must have felt homeless. There were so many questions and doubts. How could you make sense of this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, I guess the Babylonians and the Assyrians can be against us. I thought we were God's chosen people. I thought this was promised land. Imagine the anger, the spite. Imagine the distrust of foreigners and anybody who was not like you. And then there became this big debate. Is real Israel the people that were left or is the real Israel the people that were taken off? Your army is gone. Imagine being so afraid the walls around Jerusalem are destroyed. You have no protection. You're totally exposed to an enemy that would come along. Imagine never being able to go to the temple again, not knowing if you can possibly ever be right with God. This, this idea of exile has been with me as we've gone through 2020. Uh, in fact, uh, just a couple weeks into coronavirus, I preached about some of this exile in the Old Testament. But it's hung on, not, not, not because, you know, we're going through everything that exile, but that feeling of homelessness. I mean, it's been a time of such upheaval. I don't know what's coming next week. Will we have church? Will we have church? Will we be able, will my kids be in school? Who will the president be? I mean, it's a year of, I don't know. We've come, that's become the, the norm. Now, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison. We don't have people being killed and our cities being destroyed and, and our people being taken away to foreign lands. Uh, and we always have to be careful reading our situations back in the Scripture. But, but can't you identify a little bit with the, ex the, the feeling of exile, the uneasiness, the hopelessness, the, the, the this is the world that I live in? This doesn't look like the world. The uneasiness, the homelessness, the questions of where is God and how do we understand these things, the fear of virus, uh, of a virus and lots of other people we don't know, the anger and the strife. Watching this election, I'm, I'm struck by just how divided we are as a country. I mean, we now have a count on it. 
And in a lot of these states, we are just incredibly divided. But here's the good news today. The good news is the exile doesn't last forever. Eventually, the Babylonians are overtaken by the Persians. The Persians take a much more tolerant approach to peoples in the empire. They let them worship their god and even let them return home. It's just a great political move, right? Like just a way to keep peace. Okay, well, go ahead and worship your gods. Well, okay, then go ahead back to your lands. The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of this return. In fact, in the Jewish Bible, they're considered one book. They're, they're often called Ezra and Nehemiah. Listen to the beginning of Ezra to talk about how the Persians let the people come back. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that the word of the in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with you and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus says, let them go back and let's bless them. Let's give them gold, give them silver, let's give them offerings so that they can go back to their land and start to rebuild. And if you go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra is in charge of the rebuilding of the temple. Nehemiah goes around and inspects the walls of Jerusalem. And, and I, I love the combination, particularly you get it in Nehemiah, of praying and planning. Praying that God's going to do something and then planning how I'm going to help God do it. That balance, I think, is a great way to think. Pray and plan. Hope that God's going to do something, but also be working. And so this is the first of three different groups from Judah that are going to return to the Holy Land. Imagine the excitement, the celebration, the singing. Okay, I mean, you, your people were almost lost. And, and the names that we have coming back in Ezra and Nehemiah, many of them are Babylonian and Persian names. Many of these people have never even seen the Promised Land. They were born somewhere else and they're coming back. Imagine the reunions, the family members meeting for the first time. But it's also not the same, right? There's no king and there, there, never, will, there, there never would again be a king in Israel that doesn't work for somebody else. Israel still is at mercy of the Persians. They'll later be replaced by the Romans. The temple is not there and even when it's built, it's not the same. And not everyone returns home. Some people stay in these other lands. Some lands were destroyed. Some of those people who were pushed into the land remain and marry others in the land. They're, they're eventually called the Samaritans, and they're a constant reminder of this dark period of history. There continues to be a dislike and a distrust of, of others. Ezra, in fact, has scathing words about marrying for, foreigners in the, in the land of Israel. But it's not all bad. 
There's an increased religion practice after exile. Some of the most creative theology and the scriptures, a lot of the scriptures are written and edited and compiled during this time. The expectation of God's future saving act on behalf of Israel it, it charts, uh, it comes up in the prophets and it, it ends up being Jesus who fulfills a lot of those prophecies. I mean, here's the reality. Whenever you go on an adventure, whenever you go on a journey, you never come back the same. Normal never comes. Whether you choose the journey or it's forced upon you, when you get back, it's different. In stories and in movies, a lot of times the character comes back at the end. And sometimes they change name. Some names, sometimes they aren't recognized because they're so different. And they often find that they can't go on with a normal life because they're not the same. And often the thing that they were hunting for, that they were looking for, like Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant, they find they don't need, they just put it on a shelf. Harry Potter does all this work to find an unbeatable wand only to break it and give it up in the end. And, and if I just ruined those movies for you, if you haven't seen them by now, you're not gonna go see them. Right, the, the whole purpose isn't finding Nemo, the purpose is the character arc, the journey on your way to find Nemo. So this Sunday is a little bit of a comeback for us. But it's not gonna be totally normal. Some people will be in cars. We're continuing a drive-in service at 9.30 at this time. And then 10.45, we're gonna be in the sanctuary, but we'll be in masks and we'll be socially distant and, and we'll be, so we'll be spread out. There won't be any hugs. We will be humming our psalms, our songs and not singing along. So it won't be normal and we won't all be there. But, but for me, as I've been thinking, it's kind of a, a next step in the next stage in coming back to normal. But, but here's what I want to worry you, or, or what, I, what I want to tell you, is not to worry if it feels funny. Because I'll just warn you right now, we're never going back to total normal. We can't go back to normal because we'll be different. Oh yeah, there'll be a time when we won't wear masks, where we'll all be in the same service and we'll be singing out loud, where our kids will be in school without any of this stuff. But we'll be different because of what we've gone through. Now, we can decide how we're going to do that. We, we can be sad about that, or we can embrace the future. We can see this as an opportunity to love community and to be more creative, or we can be more fearful and more angry and more untrusting. And, and I tell you what, I think as I've watched the last week of the election, that that's the way our country is sort of taking this, is more fearful, more angry, and more untrusting. What are we gonna do with our future? So let's celebrate coming back together in the little ways that we can, the way we can be connected, and let's lean into some of the creativity as we come back from our own exile. Let's pray, but let's also plan. Let's embrace the lessons of exile. And let us remember that Jesus is still on the throne and he still has plans and purposes for us. And let us with joy and hope move into that future.